Welcome, listeners, to another Transformation Church sermon podcast. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning, Transformation Church. Uh, It has been an amazing day so far. Uh, For those of you that are guests or brand new, I am not Pastor Jamie. Um, come back next week. It'll keep getting better and better. I promise if you're checking us out, um, I say that, but it's already been a pretty amazing morning. Um, I don't know. I don't know if y'all saw, you know, when the, the Bible says God will inhabit our praise. And so I look up and, and as our, as our team is leading us, we have everyone up here at the altar. Just, just seeing God inhabit our praise is a pretty neat thing to see. We had four or five people give their lives to the Lord in first service. Um, and so Here's the good news. If our lives start praising more, if our relationships start praising more, God will inhabit our lives and our relationships a little bit more as well. So I love that scripture. Uh, Again, um, my name's Corey Wilson. I know a lot of you. Um, I'm on a serve team, a couple of serve teams here. I have a connect group, serve out in the parking lot. And today I get to serve right here on the platform. Pastor Jamie and Sandra send their love. Um, they are actually in St. Louis. He's, he's guest preaching this morning at a good friend's church. And so he will be back next week. And we've got a lot to look forward to in many ways. So first of all, did you all know that today is the last Sunday in February? We made it. We made, if, if you're like me, you don't love Knoxville in wintertime. Um, it's dreary and dark. And now we're on the other side of it. Days are getting longer. Skies are getting sunnier. Everything looks bright ahead. Spring's coming. Uh, we've got a great, exciting series coming up. And so as today, we're going to be the, is the very last part of our situationship series. And we're going to be moving into a new, a new series next week called the parables. That'll take us all the way into good Friday and Easter and that, that whole weekend. You do want to be here, commit right now, go ahead and say to your family, Hey, no excuses. We're going to be there. We're coming for the next month, all the way into Easter. Let's just commit to that. Now bring friends. We're, we're already pretty packed in here, but we'll make room. I promise. Um, so just, just commit to coming right now. So again, today is our bookend wrapping up this series and it's been a good one. Um, I asked this to first service, uh, who has listened to or been here for every part of the situationship series? Okay. Awesome. Quite a, quite a few people, most people. In fact, it's been fantastic. I've heard a lot of testimonies of God doing things in marriages and relationships, and it's been exciting. Uh, week one was all about serving others rather than yourself. And this quote I wrote down that, that's still hitting me, every failed relationship falls apart at the place of self-centeredness. Every failed relationship falls apart at the place of self-centeredness. Here's the thing. If it's all about you, it's all about you. Can't be about anybody else. Week two was all about keeping things in order and how you can have the exact same ingredients when put together in the wrong order, you've got nothing but a big mess. But the illustration also showed us when we have all those ingredients put together in God's order, we have blessing. And so oftentimes our relationship looks like a mess instead of blessed because we went and put everything out of order. Last week, we really talked about how we can oftentimes hold on to hurt and we hold on to it like it's a prize egg or something. We've lived in it so long, we don't know how to live any other way and how God would call us toward healing. 
And rather than living in hurt to move toward healing. And that, you, you know the old saying, hurt people hurt people, but healed people help people. And so we talked about how moving out of isolation and moving toward God and toward other people and toward healing. Today, we're gonna talk about how even though we know God can and will and wants to heal our wounds, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't get wounded quite so often in the first place? What if we could avoid some of those hurts to begin with? And so today we're gonna be talking about communication. Communication. If you like titles, the last part of our situationship series is titled Life and Death. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being in this room. I just thank you that we don't have to beg you to get involved in our relationships, friendships, marriages, any of it, um, that you are here and waiting. Uh, and so God, that's, what, we, that's what, what I asked this morning. We've already heard so many miracles about what you've done in relationships. We're just praying you continue to do that. And so we submit this next few minutes to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, before I read a little bit of, a little bit of warning that the scripture is gonna come to you differently than normal. Uh, typically I or Pastor Jamie or members of our staff who communicate here are, are gonna give it to you more in expository form. In other words, we'll take a big chunk of scripture and kind of line that out and go through that uh, verse by verse and what does that have for us in our, in our lives. Today is very much more thematic or topical and so what you're gonna get is scripture kind of pulled from different directions. We're gonna be in James and Jeremiah and Proverbs and Colossians and so just know that's a little different then we normally do it, but you'll see why as I go through. So we're gonna start in James 3, verse one. And what James does here right at the very beginning of this particular chapter is he gives a warning to teachers, be careful if you wanna teach, but then he gives a warning kind of to everybody and speaks about our mouths and our communication. So let's jump in. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and itself is set on fire by hell. Pretty upbeat message he's given here. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Let's jump into some of the wisdom scriptures in Proverbs first 15, uh, four. Proverbs 15, four. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. And finally, 
Proverbs 18, 20 through 22. From the fruit of their mouth, the person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. We have here in these scriptures sort of this cascading view of the power of our words. And I find that last scripture so interesting, the phrase, from the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. It's, it's kind of weird phrasing there. And so what, what are we talking about? Fruit, of course, comes from a seed planted. So what it's saying is that, is that we're gonna dine on the seed our tongue plants. What it's saying is we plant a seed with our mouth. <clears throat> that seed comes to fruition. And then, of course, we know you reap what you sow. And that's what's gonna fill us up, fill our stomachs, fill our relationships, fill our lives. There's really... <laughs> Too much power here for our own good sometimes. Too much power in the tongue. And, and we've got to understand the Bible says that it's, it has the power to give life or to kill, to heal or death. And I think we've got to take that very seriously in our relationships. Uh, my wife and I are celebrating our 21st anniversary this coming Friday on March 1st. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I said... I said this to first service, any marriage today staying together is a miracle. So we can, we can clap to that. Um, and so I, I, as I'm preparing this message and I've been reflecting throughout the last couple of weeks, there have been times with my mouth, the seed I've planted has given life. It's been good fruit, has, has, has encouraged. And there's been times I've absolutely killed her with my mouth. And I think if we're being real honest about our, our relationships, you could probably all say something very similar to that because we have the power to do both with our mouth. And too often, we spend so much time needing God to heal our hurt only to go back to hurting each other all over again. And we've gotta stop. We, we've gotta have more communication that brings life. So let me say this, of course, this is gonna be a sermon that's gonna be directed very much at, at folks who are married or who are moving toward marriage. However, a lot of the tools and, 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 and uh, tactics we talk about today are good for any relationship. This will help you in, in, in communicating with your children. This will help you in communicating with your parents, your boss, your colleagues, your teammates, your teachers, everybody. This is communication that can apply across the board. So let me give you a really hard truth. All of us want to communicate well. All of us desire to communicate well, but we will still end up in conflict. It's a guarantee. You will end up in conflict, but see, here's the reality. We've confused the two. Conflict doesn't mean hurt. Conflict and hurt are not the same thing. It's not the conflict that wounds, it's how we deal with the conflict that wounds. It's my response to the conflict that wounds. And so knowing that, we have to get better at conflict that doesn't wound one another. Now, why is it so hard? Well, there's a few reasons and I'll jump into to several of them today. But in, a, in the marriage context, why is it so hard? One reason is because you had the wrong expectations coming into it. 
You thought marriage was going to be something it wasn't because you saw some romantic movie or you read some romantic book and you thought that's what marriage was going to look like. And it ain't That's Southern to say you were wrong, right? So, so that is not at all because in the movie or in the book, you never have a sick kid who's got green snot coming out and you're arguing about whether you send them to school or not. And will the teacher notice the fever is really above a hundred and not 99, we used to get mad at parents who did that. And then we had kids. <laughs> ah, he's not that sick. Uh, the, the, the movie never, ever, ever has the electric bill that comes due and they shut your lights off. And then you say, I thought you were using the banking bill pay system. I thought you were setting up automatic draft. And now our lights are off and the power's out. The movie never has that. The movie never has weight gain. The movie never has farting around each other. The movie, the movie never has mother-in-laws ever. And I'm just, I'm kidding. I love my mother-in-law. I really do. Uh, you had wrong expectations. You, you saw the wrong story and thought that was going to be real. You had the wrong expectations because you used the phrase, I fell in love or we've fallen in love. Get that phrase out of your mouth. It's not true. That's the wrong phrase. Because when I say, when I use the phrase, I've fallen in love or I fell in love, it, it's almost like it was out of my control. It was completely, I couldn't do anything about it. And what that means is that I also can't do anything about it if I fall out of love. Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. That means I don't have to take responsibility. I don't, I don't have to take accountability for working on this thing because I've fallen out of love and doesn't God want me to be with someone I love? Wrong. And as Christians, we don't fall in love. We grow in love. We walk in love, the Bible says. It's not about falling in and out of love as if you're out of control. That ain't it. You also expected marriage to be a 50-50 thing. Someone told you that it's 50-50. We compromise. And, the, and they, gave you, they gave you that advice and, and you thought, well, if, if he gives a little and she gives a little, we both give a little and we meet in the middle. That ain't true. Because no one knows exactly where 50-50 is. Everybody feels like they've compromised more than the other party. And so you have no idea where the middle is and you're both looking for fair all the time and you never found it. So if you're not married yet, let me tell you this. It's 100 and 100. That's the only thing that will ever work is if I'm willing to give hundred percent and I stop looking for fair, that then it'll work. It's not about 50, 50. So wrong expectations. The second big problem is you married someone who isn't like you. That is a challenge. And the truth of the matter is opposites attract, right? It's two steps forward and two steps back. And we come together because opposites attract. It ain't fiction, just a natural fact. I'm done. Pa Paula Abdul wasn't wrong, but she just didn't tell you what that looks like five and 10 and 20 years down into a marriage when all the things that, were, that you loved about that other person, because they were so different than me and I loved that about them, those are the things that you might end up hating five years from now, 10 years from now. Those are the things that were cute to begin with that you hate later on. Like when I load the dishwasher and she comes behind me and changes the way I just loaded the dishwasher. 
I just do it yourself if you're going to change the way I just did it. Or, or when I, when I go get mail, I take every magazine, everything that we don't have to open. Even, I even take the envelopes off of the bills and put them in the recycling bin on the way in to avoid clutter where, where she, <laughs> and then I'll find that she has pulled out of the recycling bin, the thing I just put in there so she could flip through the magazines, not to buy anything, just to, just to shop a little bit. Uh, or, or when one of you has the love language of touch and likes to cuddle a little bit at night before you fall asleep and the other person can't stand to be touched while they're sleeping. And, and so there's a little bit of opposition going on. Or when one of you wants to leave the bathroom open while you're using the bathroom, and the other person doesn't like that. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm being very vulnerable with you all right now. And you start growing really frustrated at the thing God was trying to do, which is bring together two different people who are better together than they were by themselves because of their differences. Harmony, and this is the third thing, harmony isn't uniformity, and you forgot that. Harmony isn't uniformity. Let me read a a scripture from Colossians to you. This is in the message version because I like the wording they use here. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. In tune, in step, together, does not mean you're singing the same note. It does mean you're singing from the same songbook. It does mean you're moving in the same direction, but it does not mean you're coming in at the same octave, playing the same instrument. So I just, just think about this morning, everybody up here. So on the keys, it was beautiful, but can you imagine if every one of our instruments were keys? Can you imagine if every note was exactly the same? That's not what harmony looks like. Harmony looks like She's got a little bit different personality than I do, and that's a good thing. She's got a different temperament than I do, and that's a good thing. Her parenting style is different than mine always is, and that's a good thing. Bringing together different people. God did intend that, so don't let, don't, Paul Abdul was right. It's a good thing. Don't, let, don't get frustrated just because they're different than you. That's what God intended. Harmony's not about uniformity. So we've got to get better at conflict. Let's talk about this process of conflict resolution. And I'm gonna do something I never do, but I'm doing it today and I'm gonna recommend a book to you guys. And so here's, here's the book. Um, it is called Crucial Conversations. I would highly recommend it. I heard some, I saw some people excited. So some of you've read this. I highly recommend it to you. I'm gonna say this, if you need a copy of it, I'll get you a copy of it. I, I, I'm, I would love to put this in your hand, but only on one condition. For every minute you read this, you've got to read the word for more than a minute, right? Now there's truth in here. You'll see echoes of scripture. And if you've read this, you know that about this book, but these words are not the word, okay? So for, for for every little bit of this book you read, you've got to read more of scripture because a transformed heart can really take these skills and do something with them. But if you're not changed, you're just going to continue on the same cycle anyway, no matter what I tell you. So Crucial conversations, that's just another way of saying conflict. And there's really, uh, it's important to define what we mean when we say crucial conversations. What does it mean? Really three different things. It's opposing opinions, it's high stakes, and it's strong emotions. Opposing opinions, when the stakes are high, and there's strong emotions in the situation. So when that happens, and for some of you, that happened this morning, 
right? It happens all the time in a marriage. It's inevitable in a relationship. When that happens, there's really three things that are gonna happen. We're either gonna avoid it, we're gonna handle it really poorly, or we're gonna handle it well. Some of you automatically avoid it. You would say that you don't like conflict, you don't like confrontation, and so your natural bent is to avoid it altogether. That's not good. Some of you, and this, is, this would be me, have, have no really, just don't mind confrontation, sometimes like confrontation. And so you, you, you in, you're in these situations and you rush headlong into these situations and you handle it really poorly. But we often forget there is a third option. It is possible to handle these things well. And it is possible to be in conflict in crucial conversations and not wound the other person. So, so how do we do that? And what's in the way of us doing that? Well, I think there's really three things that are in our way. And then there's seven solutions I'm going to give you. The three obstacles are this, your body, your history, and you. Your body, your history, and you. What I mean when I say your body, I mean there are physiological things that happen when we get into conflict that conspire against you. Let, let me explain. We see conflict as a threat the same way we see any other physical threat. We get into these arguments when the stakes are high and we're emotional and we completely disagree and we see these as a threat. And so what happens when we face physical threats? What's our instinct? It's called fight or flight, right? So what happens is you sense a threat and your body goes into protection mode. And you have these two tiny little organs above your kidneys that suddenly start, when you're in protection mode, pumping adrenaline into your system. And then you have all of the blood goes from, from your brain to what it would call or away from what it would call non-essential functions into life-saving functions like running or attacking. And then all of the blood goes out of your brain to your large muscles, uh, your arms and your legs that can help you either run or attack. And it goes away from the parts of your brain that give you reason, logic, rationality. Who needs that? And so what happens is we get into these situations with a loved one where emotions are high, it's critical, we need, to have, we need to make good decisions and have a good conversation, but our body thinks we just walked up on a saber-toothed tiger. And, and we're trying to reconcile these two, these, two, these two opposing things. So your body conspires against you. Second, your history conspires against you. What you've witnessed, and the bottom line is, none of, well, not many of us have ever been taught how to do it the right way. And so I'm going to ask, a, this is a survey, a couple hundred people here. And uh, if your parents are with you, maybe this is awkward. I don't know. Who in here has seen it done right? When their parent, they think of their parents arguing a couple, couple, when they think of their parents arguing, it was healthy, it was productive, it was respectful, it was done right. Okay, I, I know for, I mean, quick math, that was less than 1% of us. Okay, I came, I, I came from the other end of the spectrum, right? So when I think about growing up in my home, uh, and my parents are still married, praise the Lord, but when I think about growing up in my home, I had, uh, they didn't have conflict resolution because they didn't have conflict. Conflict is too pretty of a word to actually put on what was going on in my house. It was fighting, 
it was all out attacking, not physically, thankfully, but, but verbally attacking back and forth in this ugly, unhealthy cycle. And so for me, I have no idea how to do this the right way. I was just hoping for a marriage that didn't have any conflict, right? Because I don't know, I don't know how to deal with it. Wrong expectations. And so I had no, I had no skills or tools because I had never seen that modeled. So your body conspires against you. Your history conspires against you. And then you conspire against you. We can be our own worst enemies and we create the very thing we're trying to avoid. And, and I, the exam, best example I can give is, I shared this in first service, but my wife and I both work outside the home. And when you do that, and a lot of you are in that same situation, sometimes that's hard to figure out when you're both coming home at the end of the day and trying to get kids places and trying to get dinner cooked and trying to keep the house somewhat in order and not bringing magazines in. You, <laughs> you're, you, you end up having to figure out roles in, in certain ways. And so there have been times where I handled a specific situation totally wrong where she had some really important things going on at work, the high stress that demanded extra time. And so she's coming home a couple of minutes late, a few days in a week. And so what do I do in that situation? Well, I can handle it. I can avoid it. I can handle it poorly or I can handle it well. I chose to handle it poorly. And so that can be, that can be sarcastic comments or that can be, you know, I'm just feeling unappreciated or that can be flat out. You walk in the door and I'm going to launch at you and just unload the guns at you automatically right off the bat. So what I want is a situation where we can come to an agreement and have peace around this particular conflict. What I've created is a situation where she walks in the door and she walked up on a saber toothed tiger and gets attacked. Who wants to come in to a spouse that's attacking you, fighting you, being sarcastic towards you, being mean towards you? Nobody, right? So I'm my own worst enemy and I'm creating the thing I'm trying to avoid by doing that. So those are the challenges when we face these, uh, these conflicts, these crucial conversations is your body's working against you, your history's working against you and you are working against you. So is it all bad news? Do we have to remain in this cycle? No. How can we fix some of these things? Conflict is real. It will happen. These things are against you, but there are solutions that, that do work if we'll just take a breath and take a moment. There's tools we can have. So there's seven solutions I'm gonna give you in the next 15 minutes that will lead to more wins and less wounds. Really practical, really applicable. Number one, motivations matter. You've gotta know your heart motivations on the outset matter. So I want to share with you Jeremiah 17. And again, this is in the message version. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. So right at the outset, the first solution is, You've got to be honest with yourself and ask what you want and what do they want? Check your heart right at the beginning. And really the scripture says, don't, you can't do that yourself. You've got to have God in that process. God, help me check my heart right from the beginning. Because oftentimes we waste time on things we don't even really want in the argument. You know, we say we want peace or resolution or a compromise around a specific area but we fight and argue like we want to punish the other person. 
We say we want peace, but we fight and we argue like we just simply want to win that argument. We say we want to be together and in tune, but really what we want is for them to admit that they were wrong and we were right. If that's what you're wanting, you've already lost. You've got to check your heart and make sure those things are not your motivation, but to get to the real, to the real heart of the issue. So check your heart. Motivations matter. Number two, stay in it. Stay in it. If you have checked your heart and your motivations, if you can really clearly articulate, what do I want? What do they want? Then I just encourage you to stay in it. Because so often when we get into these real critical conversations, we resign ourselves to making the fool's choice. Those, those first two options, either avoidance or handling it poorly, either silence or violence, either flight or fight. None of those options are healthy and none of them will be good. Now, when I say stay in it, I don't mean that you don't have the opportunity to say time out. This isn't productive. I'm gonna go take a minute or 15 or 20 or whatever it takes. And then we're gonna come back. What I am saying is a permanent time out never works. What I am saying is, you know what? Forget it. Just forget it. If I, if I keep talking, it's just gonna go bad. So let's just drop it. And I'm gonna push it under the rug. I'm gonna push it down deep and I'm not gonna worry about it anymore. Silence never stays silent forever. Silence is only temporary. Because what happens, actually was researching this this week, uh, the individual who avoids at all costs and stays silent through conflict, it ends, they end up with higher blood pressure. They end up with cholesterol spiking. They end up with stress. They end up with weight gain. They end up with poor sleep. They end up with heart conditions. And here's something interesting. There's an, I would call an epidemic of husbands being decapitated in our country right now. Yeah, there are shows created about women who just completely snap and go after their, their husbands. They pushed it down deep and they pushed it down deep. And the point is silence doesn't stay silence for long. It all goes back to violence. So these, these got headless people walking around because they couldn't resolve their, I'm joking a little bit. They can't resolve conflict. You think you're avoiding the situation, but you're not. Stay in it. Number two, stay in it. Number three, safety first. This is huge. We have to make conditions safe. You will never, ever, ever have productive dialogue if the other party feels unsafe. Not ever. It's a complete waste of your time. And now I, I want to be careful here. I said safe. I did not say comfortable. Sometimes these conflicts, these situations aren't going to be comfortable. That's okay. That doesn't mean people are getting wounded. But what I am talking about is safety. So if someone walks in the door and you launch into attack, you've already lost. If someone walk in, walks in and they encounter a saber-toothed tiger, you know what happens. It's fight or flight at that point. And so the other side of that is true as well. If people aren't afraid of attack, if they trust your intentions, they know you've checked your heart and they know in, that you trust and care for them, they'll hear almost anything you have to say. They really will. But if they don't, they'll hear nothing you have to say. So we have two prerequisites for safety. How do we create safe conditions? Number one, you have to care about their concerns, really care about their concerns. Just don't do a lip service. And number two, you care about them 
care about their concerns and care about them and you'll have a safe situation. So I've already shared, I've created the opposite of this many times where, you know, I can, I can be upset with my wife and I'll be at home and I'll be waiting for her and I can be doing all the right things for the wrong reason. So I can be serving the house, washing dishes, just as pissed, I don't know if I, just as angry <laughs> as I, just as angry as I could possibly be or vacuum the floor, just fuming, serving our family, right? Look at me, the hero. And really what I'm waiting for is, is, is the chance for her to come in and me to pounce. And I've created a really unsafe condition right off the bat and it'll never go well. So take the time, take a breath and make it safe and be aware if, if the other party is feeling unsafe. And here's the good news because what we've already talked about, it's really easy to tell, right? Silence and violence. So you can tell when they're feeling unsafe if they start to withdraw, from the situation, or if they start to behave aggressively in the situation. You can tell you're, for whatever reason, not feeling safe. If you start to withdraw and clam up, or if you start going back to some of your old habits and you know polishing your debate skills or your manipulation skills, right? That's when you're not feeling safe. So create safe conditions for one another. Number four, the easiest way to keep it safe, leave your weapons behind leave your weapons at the door. Now, now what am I talk about, talking about specifically? Number one, and I want to be real serious for a second, threats. Do not ever bring threats into the conflict. You don't threaten about money or their future security. You don't threaten about intimacy or sex. You don't threaten about divorce. You don't say it. You don't spell it right? Don't bring that into the, into the conversation, not ever. And I'm being serious about this. If you have, that's one of those things when you get in the car today, you should look across and say, Hey, I repent for that. I'm not bringing threats in, into these anymore. You don't bring those weapons in. Also don't use things meant for, as a tool, as a weapon, a hammer can be an amazing tool, but it also can be an awful weapon. This we have a really bad tendency to use tools as weapons. So, so what, what am I talking about? Well, don't use this sermon as a weapon, right? Don't take one of my points, twist it around and start using it as a weapon against your spouse. Here's another one that we, we often do. Don't use the Bible as a weapon. Don't take some verse out of context and point it at your spouse and tell them they're not living up to this. Don't do that. The, the Bible was never meant to be a weapon. Now, for those of you who are like, wait a second, I thought I read something about this, a Bible and the sword. You're talking about Hebrews 4, and I'm gonna read it to you. 4.12, Hebrews. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So that's a scripture, just to be clear, about holding yourself accountable. So anytime you're using the Bible as a sword, you best turn that on you and hold yourself accountable in these situations. The Bible's never meant to be, a, to be a weapon against someone. Number five, emotions aren't your master. Emotions are not your master. Uh, we are quite childish sometimes when it comes to our emotions, 
right? We, they're, they're, their emotions are, are perfectly fine and normal and healthy, but they're a terrible boss. Now, I know a lot of guys and maybe, maybe gals too who would say, oh, I'm, I'm just not that emotional person. I'm just not that emotional. She's emotional. He's emotional. I'm just not that emotional. I've said that. Well, here's news for you. Did you know anger is also an emotion? I'm not an emotional person, but I've been controlled by my anger before. And so we have to ask ourselves, who's the boss? Am I gonna be in control or are my emotions gonna be in control of you? And let me tell you a hard truth. Your wife doesn't make you mad. Your husband doesn't make you mad. Your kids do not make you mad. You are dealing with people and you chose to be mad. You chose to be frustrated, right? You are not some kind of victim to your emotions. You just let them control you in that situation. So how can I get control? Number six is a big one for me. And it is know the story. Know the story. Here, I believe, is one of the keys to mastering your emotions, to keeping these conversations moving in the right direction. You have to understand, how did we get here to begin with? We are in this knockdown, drag out fight. How did we get here to begin with? Here's how you got there. It's called the path to action. And it starts with something you observe. You see and you hear. Then, this is key, you tell a story. Then you feel something about this story. You have the emotions, the natural feelings that pop up because of the story you just told. And then finally, you act. And so often we find ourselves in these huge conflicts that we can't figure out a way out of because we don't realize the story we've told led to the feelings we feel, which leads to the misbehavior we have in that moment. So let me give you some Really, really important example. So a week or two ago, uh, well, let me set the back, the back story first. My wife and I have failed at parenting in a few ways. And one of them is the, our kids think they can just walk into our room, our bathroom, our closet, as if they owned it. They just come, I mean, no knock, no anything. Hey, I'm gonna take your clothes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your makeup. I'm gonna take your comb. I'm gonna take, it's, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. And so they just, they just complete uh, boldness just to come walking right up into, into our, even our bathroom. And I've got girls and so, hey, I do have to get changed somewhere. Um, and so what, they'll, come in, they'll come everywhere. Bedroom, closet, there is no safe place. So what I've gotten accustomed to doing is I got to lock the door, right? When I get out of the shower, I'm getting changed. I have to lock the door or my kids will literally in the morning just walk up in there. Now, a week or two ago, my wife comes up because she's trying to get ready in the morning. She tries to turn the, the, the handle and it's locked. And I say, hey, it's locked for a reason. <laughs> Sounds like you heard the same story she heard. What I meant was, as you know, our girls will just come up in here anytime. So I've locked it to keep them out. What she heard was, you don't want me in here either. And you're telling me to go away. I hear that now that I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> so you got options at this point, right? So, so she could get angry and said, I cannot believe he just did that and go away and be, be upset with me and be hurt as she should be. And then I could read her 
uh, feelings and I get mad and say, she, doesn't she remember the kids walk in all the time? Can I have any place to get ready? And we can both start telling each other these stories. Thankfully, we, we actually had the conversation within like five minutes. Here's what I heard. Here's what I meant. That's not the story, right? And we move on. Or you can, I have this happen with my kids all the time. I'll tell myself stories that lead me to actions that are way out of bounds. So like, for example, if they get a couple of bad grades, well, you got a couple of bad grades. Well, clearly you're not trying hard enough, man. And so the story you start telling yourself, well, they're just lazy. And they're probably lazy, probably always going to be lazy. What happens to lazy people? Well, they, they're going to do poorly in high school and they're going to not forget doing poorly in college. They can't get into college. And so, and, and, and you know, a trade lazy person can't be good at a trade. And so, so of course they're going to end up in a, in a poor life the rest of their life and on a ditch somewhere or moving back in with us even worse. So, so I, you tell this story, the fear rises up in you that that's what's going to happen. Your kid's permanently on a path to failure because they made two B's and you begin to come down on them hard when the story was, oh, they made a B. They'll do better next time. It's that simple, but we can tell ourselves a story that gets ourselves to a feeling that makes us misbehave and act in a way that's completely unproductive. So the easiest way to control all that is know the story. Easiest way to do that is to know the liars. Two liars that you've got to face all the time when it comes to your story. The devil and you. First of all, the devil's a liar. The devil is clearly a liar. Jesus talks about it in John 8, and he says this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding on to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He literally gives birth to lies. He lies to you all the time. Every second you're awake, the devil is lying to you. Just as bad, you lie to yourself. Most of the time, the conflict we have is because of a lie we've told in our story, which means that we felt a certain way and we've acted way out of bounds. So your insecurity lies to you, your past lies to you, and your mistakes lie to you. You have to learn to see the lie. Now, here's the good news when it comes to, to seeing the story and knowing the story is, you, if you know the path that got you there, you can retrace the path together to get back. So remember, looking at that same thing, if, if you find yourself acting in a certain way that you know is completely unproductive, go back from action and say, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I acting out of fear? Why, what's going on here? Oh, what's the story I've told myself? Is, and, and is this story true? Maybe it is. But when you look at the things you've observed, what you've heard, what you've seen, is that facts that are giving your story life or is that fear that is giving your story life? For me, many times it's just fear and that's what I'm telling my story on. In conflict, you can retrace together. Number seven, pursue transformation. And this is the most important one I've got for you. Every bit of this, this book, all the tactics and tools, the skills, it's great information. But if we don't seek real change, we will never see real change. And that's just a fact. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna encourage you to, in, in terms of seeking transformation, four invitations. First invitation, invite Jesus into your life. Invite Jesus into our lives and our marriage. 
You have to submit your life to Christ. He will absolutely change your heart. He will absolutely change your marriage. He'll absolutely change the way you parent, the way you relate to one another. If you submit to him, he will transform. If, if Jesus is in you and Jesus is in your spouse, Jesus is not fighting Jesus. If Jesus is in Corey and Jesus is in Becca, Jesus isn't gonna fight Jesus. So what that means is your fight ends at the cross. You will not continue your fight at the foot of the cross. Can't happen. And so you have to actually submit these things to Jesus. Now, the only, the only problem is Jesus is only gonna transform what you really submit to him. And we have a real bad tendency to wanna let God be the Lord of most of our lives but not all of our lives. God, you can have all of this, but my finances. You can have all of this, but the way, uh, you know, what I do on a Sunday afternoon, because I really want to golf. You can have all of this, but my marriage. You can have all of this, but the way I communicate, the way I parent. It's really all of it. If you want God to transform you, you have to submit every bit of it. That, that, that means you submit your uh, right to be right. That, submit, that you submit your right to and desire to win the argument. You have to submit your right to hear their apology just the way you wanted to hear it. You have to submit every bit of that to Jesus. Number two, invite Jesus into the conversation. Talk to God about it. In James uh, chapter four, verse two, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. When is the last time you prayed about the conflict? When is the last time you as a couple prayed about the conflict. I mean, we'll, we'll talk to friends about it, which, which can be good. We'll talk to therapists and coaches about it, which, which can be good. Uh, we'll talk to Facebook about it, which is probably not good. Um, but you won't talk to God about it. You won't ask God to come into that conversation. Number three, invite Jesus to be Jesus because only he can. We, uh, we believe sometimes, and this is back to bad expectations, that when we get married, he or she is gonna meet our deepest need. Only Jesus can meet your deepest need. Look, I can be an amazing husband, but I'm a lousy prince of peace. She can be an amazing wife, but she's a lousy king of kings. Only God can meet your deepest needs, so you need to let your spouse off the hook. Let your spouse off the cross, so to speak. Not just your spouse, we were talking earlier. Sometimes we do this with friends. We do this with other relationships. We want them to be Jesus to us. Only Jesus can be Jesus. The best I can do is reflect Jesus to my spouse. And I can do that by pursuing Jesus myself, but she can't be that for me and I can't be that for her. And number four, invite others who are following Jesus into the situation. Sometimes we hear a lot of voices around us and a lot of times they're not productive at all. So when you go out seeking advice, when you go out seeking people to be in the situation, make sure they're people who are following Jesus. That's super easy here. Get into a connect group. There's men's connect groups all throughout the week, women's throughout the week, couples throughout the week. There's serve teams you can jump on. Let people who should be speaking into your life speak into your life. Don't go seeking an echo chamber where they're just telling you what you wanna hear that you don't need to hear. You're too good for him. He is a jerk. You can do better than her. That's nonsense. Get with people. We have, we have marriage coaches right here in our church. We have connect groups right here in our church. Get with people 
who are following Jesus. So again, the four invitations and we're gonna close. Invite Jesus uh, uh, into your life. Submit all of it to him. Invite Jesus into the conversation. Talk to him about it. Bring God into it. Invite Jesus to, to be Jesus. Let your spouse off the hook for that. And then invite others who are hearing Jesus into your life. Let's pray. Everybody, if you'll close your, close your eyes, bow your heads with me. I just, I didn't mention this in first, but I, I just feel the Holy Spirit saying this right now. Sometimes you hear this and sometimes we are in these situations and you think, well, that would have been great if I'd have heard it a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago. Our marriage is beyond repair. I just wanna remind you that we serve a God who's in the business of bringing dead things to life. And so for some of you in here, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand on this, please be encouraged with that. Please don't believe the thing is dead just because you've told yourself it's dead or because Satan has told you it's dead. I believe, I believe that is for somebody right in, in here right now, that God is in the, th- in the business of bringing dead things back to life and that could mean your relationship. But I am gonna ask you to participate in this with everybody with their eyes closed, just really two things. The first is, is this, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand in a moment if you're willing just to, to submit the relationship to God. Just submit it to God. Now, obviously this is, this is between you and him. I'm not gonna follow you home and I can't make sure you meant it. And just because you did mean it doesn't mean conflict isn't gonna come up and you might not slip again. But just the beginning stage of the whole thing is can I submit my marriage, my future marriage, my relationship to God? So on the count of three, if you'll just say that and mean it, raise your hand. One, two, three. Awesome, awesome. He's faithful, the Bible tells us. Even when we aren't faithful, God is faithful in these situations. And I believe he's gonna be faithful in our marriages. The second thing I would, would mention to you, we, we talked a lot about this a little bit earlier, just submitting our marriages and, 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 and our attitudes and all that to Jesus. But some of you would say, you know what? I've not submitted anything to Jesus. Or maybe I did a long time ago, but I've been, I've, I've been living my own life and I've been leading my own life. And now I've got a mess of a life that looks like I've been in control. The Bible tells you, you can have a fresh start today. So on the, on the count of three, if, if you would just say, I'm not gonna bring you up, I'm not gonna come to you. But if you would just say, hey, I want a fresh start with God this morning, raise your hand. One, two, three. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Hold them. Oh, praise God. Yeah, praise God. So we're going to pray together. Several of you raised your hand. Fresh start with God today. We're going to pray together. And even if you didn't, it's, it's not about the magic of the words I'm about to speak. It's about a posture and a submission of your heart. God, we thank you so much this morning. Again, I'll just say, we thank you that we don't have to beg you to get involved in our lives, that you, you proved you wanted to be in our lives when you sent your son to the cross, God. And so now we can be made new. We can have a fresh start. You, would, you call us a brand new creation, Lord. And we praise you for it. And so we just fully confess and admit this morning, we are in desperate need of a savior. We are desperate people, desperate for a savior. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are God. We thank you for what you, the work you did on the cross and the work you do in our lives, Lord. And so we completely surrender and hand over our lives to you this morning. We thank you for taking it. We thank you for, for making us new. In the name of Jesus, amen. Give God a hand for what he did this morning.
Thank you for listening to another Transformation Church sermon podcast. If you would like someone to pray with you, or if you would like some ministry materials, please email us at hello at transformationchurch.us.